0: Good morning. If you've got a Bible, go to 1 John chapter two. We're gonna look at verses three through 11 today. Let's continue our study in the epistle of 1 John and uh, learning what we are learning there. So as you're turning, uh, and uh, welcome to all those of you who are online as well. We're glad that you're here and joining us. So we're gonna look at these verses today. And as I was uh, thinking about them and preparing and praying for this morning, I couldn't help but think about um, the first year of my marriage. And I've shared this before, but enough of you probably, um, it's been a while since I talked about it, so you may not have heard me talk about this. But Amanda and I, uh, and she gave me permission to share this, we had a challenging first year of marriage. And in some ways, we had a great first year, but in other ways, I was 31 when we got married and had really had some uh, bachelor patterns that had been like hardened in me. Uh, Some just functioning too independently and kind of not knowing how to be a great teammate, honestly, uh, to a wife. And so in that first year, we went round and round as you know, as you tend to do with some different things. But uh, one of the kind of constant conversations was this sense of uh, my not loving her in the way that she needed to be loved. And she was right about that. And you know, we always, it's helpful to remember that scripturally, love always involves uh, a commitment of the will you know, to the best interest of the other person, regardless of the cost to us. And, and if you only have one aspect of love, that's probably the best one to have. I mean, it's, you know, that's real. That very much is what love is in a large portion. But there's another component to love that the scriptures talk about that is being emotionally compelled uh, and having a deep affection for someone. And while I definitely had deep affection for Amanda, there were some ways that that just didn't translate or didn't come out in my actions. And I had a lot of growing to do. And so we'd have these conversations. I distinctly remember somewhere around the end of our first year, Of marriage that we were in the kitchen kind of having another one of these conversations about this uh, this same subject. And something in that conversation brought Amanda to tears. And she's not a person who goes to tears super easy, but she definitely was brought to tears that day. And I just remember something in me broke when that happened. Something in me just began to weep as she was weeping because there was this desire in me to love her the way that I should love her, but also a recognition that I didn't have the capacity to do it. That I didn't have the ability to give what she was asking me for. And so there was, this, there was this recognition in that moment where I said, I think I finally get what you're asking me for. I think I finally get what you're saying to me that you need from me. And it's right that you're asking me for that. But here's what I recognize. What you're asking me for is is a kind of emotional capacity that I feel like I have this much and you're saying in order to love you as I should that I need this much and I can't just create that. I can't just make that kind of emotional capacity but I know someone who can and so I'm promising you, I commit to you that I will pray every day without stopping, I will pray and ask God to change me, to take a heart that has this much capacity and to give it this much Um, because I know he desires for our marriage to be healthy and strong and for me to love you the way that Christ loves his church. I know he desires it, so I will pray. Will you pray with me? And she said, no, I'm not gonna pray. No, I'm just kidding. She She said, yeah, she said, yeah, of course. Of course I will pray. And so she began to pray every day and I began to pray every day. And I don't know about you, but often my sanctification, my becoming like Jesus feels like it's an inch by inch kind of a growth. Does that feel that way to y'all? that it can be just like, okay, another inch today, another inch today, another inch today. And I think that's how a lot of the Christian life is. And that's not bad, that's good. This was one of those rare moments in my life where instead of inch by inch, it was like mile by mile. What happened in my heart is nothing short of miraculous. I began to pray and the God who answers prayer just changed me. He just radically altered my heart. Just completely brought a tenderness and an affection and um, just kind of a, I don't know, it's not, like, not like movie romanticism, but like a gushing over my spouse that I think was much more what it looks like in the way Christ loves his church. And so the reason I was thinking about that this week is because I, well, I also wonder if you have things that you're like, you know something is good and right, and yet you don't love it the way that you should. Do you feel that way sometimes too? Like, you're like, I know this is good. I know it's right. And yet I'm not, I don't live it out or or love it in my heart the way that I know that I should. I feel incomplete in it. Yes, talk back to me for a second. Okay, good, awesome. You guys are noticeably quieter than first service. So don't be afraid. Let me just invite it, okay? I mean, you be you, be you, that's fine. But, But you can talk to me too, okay? So yeah, if you felt that, like I feel that, that's what this passage is about today. So last week, we looked at the fact that we have these weapons to kill sin. And this week, we're gonna to come to the other side of that coin because John is gonna say, you don't just need to kill sin and leave it behind you. You need to run towards what's good and do it. You need to love what is good and you need to do it. And here's the great miracle of this passage is that he's gonna give us more tools, more weapons to do that, not just to kill sin, but to love righteousness, to love what is good, and to do what is good. And there's a supernatural power available in Jesus in order to do that. So what John is gonna try to impart to us today is that he wants to give you a gift of these tools that God has brought into your life that are available to you to begin to love what is good and do what is good at a greater capacity than you ever have before. That's pretty exciting, yes? And so that's what he wants to give you. Don't just hate your sin and kill it. Love what is good and do it. Now remember that throughout this epistle throughout this letter John's big agenda is confidence, right? We've talked about this. He wants all the believers that he's writing to to be confident that they actually have a relationship with God, that they know him. So that's one of the reasons I love this as your pastors cuz I want you to walk out of here with greater confidence every time you we join together in God's word. I want you to walk out with greater confidence in the work of God and the power of the spirit and with the the sense of certainty that you know him and that from that relationship with him, he can launch you out into this immense effectiveness to extend his kingdom. I want you to walk out so convinced that he loves you in Christ that you're blown away. That's my hope for you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I actually hope the opposite for you. Now hear me out. I, I want you to have no confidence so that you'll turn to Christ. So as we go through... This letter, again, he's going to say there's three things that should give you great confidence, that you believe the truth about Jesus. If you believe the truth about who he is, fully God, fully man, son of God. If you believe that, you should have have every reason for confidence. You should not be uh, lacking in it. If you then also do what is right, you should have confidence because that's God working in you. And then the last thing he is gonna point to, and again, I told you there's gonna be a lot of repetition in 1 John, right? The last thing he's going to say, if you love each other, if you love your brothers and sisters in the faith, and even more broadly, John's focused on loving in the house of faith because of the situation he's facing, but he certainly is not denying that there is a love that's supposed to be present in us that is much broader than just the household of faith, but for our neighbors, for all. And so he's saying, if you find that love in you, then you should be confident. And so those are the three things he's going to point to, and you're going to find that in this passage, he's going to bring those last two things together. He's going to talk about the fact that we love what is right and do it, and that the greatest example of loving what is right and doing it is to love each other, and so he's going to bring those together so that we might have confidence. So today, we're going to look at the weapons, and we've got five of them, five weapons or tools that God is going to give us through this passage to help us love what is good and do what is good, all right? So let's look at it together, beginning in verse 3 of 1 John chapter 2. Here's what John writes and by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So there's our kind of our thesis statement there. This is how we know that we've come to know him. We keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. That's a really big claim. You see that? We'll talk about what that means here just shortly. But in him, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. All right, so I said there's gonna be five tools that are given to us here, so let's just start to work our way through them. The first one is probably the one you might expect, but it's a, I wanna show you how it's actually a tool versus just um, an experience, and the first tool is love. The first tool that helps us love what is good and do what is good is love itself. Now, let me explain what I mean here. So first, I wanted to look at the whole passage. We gotta take the passage as a whole and how John lays it out, and then we gotta look at verse five specifically, and we're gonna learn two things about how love is this resource for us to begin to do what is good, right? To begin to move in that direction. So the first thing that we recognize is in verse three through 11, very simply, the first couple verses, John is talking about God's commandments in general, and then beginning in verse seven, he talks about one specific command, and that is the command to love each other, right? To be full of love for each other. And the reason he's laying the passage out that way is because he's pointing out something very important, that love is the fulfillment of all God's commands. And the reason he's saying that is because it's what Jesus said. He's laying out this passage in the same way Jesus says when he's asked in Matthew 22, remember he gets asked by the Pharisees, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your who? To love your neighbor as yourself. And then he includes this phrase, on these depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, all God's commands can be summed up in love. Love one another, love your neighbor. Now in John 13, Jesus says this, the night before he's, the night he is betrayed and then before he goes to the cross, the last supper, he washes the disciples' feet and then he gives them a new commandment. We just read something about a new commandment, didn't we? He so says, I'm giving you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so are you to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, that you're connected to me, that you know me. How? If you have love for one another. Now, I want you to just put yourself in the situation for a minute if you can. Remember, John is writing this. John is the one who is sitting around that table at the Last Supper, right next to Jesus, leaning on his chest. He's heard Jesus say these words. He's had his feet washed by Jesus. It's a great demonstration of sacrificial service that is love. And it's echoing in his ears. John hears, love one another. Love one another as I have loved you. Go back to John standing on that dusty road as Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he's sitting listening as Jesus says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord. And the second is to love your neighbor. You know how John identifies himself in his gospel when he writes his gospel? Anybody remember? He calls himself the beloved disciple. Do you think it got through to him that love is the fulfillment of all the commands of God? He says, how am I gonna write about myself? How am I gonna talk about myself? You know what is most important about me? What matters more than anything is I know that I am loved by God. He doesn't mean I'm beloved and the other ones are not right? Somehow I'm more loved. No, he just goes, this is what's most fundamentally true about me in Christ. I am the object of God's affection. I am the object of his love. Do you see how powerful that is? And so now John comes to his, ride, his letter and he's writing to these churches and he doesn't want them to be led astray by these false leaders, false teachers, people who have left the church. And what's he going to say? He's going to say, I want to show you this tool And that tool is love. You are filled with it in Christ. You are the object of his love. And you now have it overflowing out of you. And he says, if you want to love what is good and do what is good, which you must, you need to. That's the key, that's the key to having confidence that you actually know God. Then the thing that you can be confident is as you find his love filling you, like you can. That can be your guide. Always ask the question, what does love require of me? Now, let me let you in on a little secret because in theologically conservative circles, and that would certainly include us, right? Sometimes I think we get a little nervous talking about love because the world talks about love all the time and it just takes love to be anything that anybody wants it to be. But the answer to that problem is not to give up love and abdicate it and say, okay, world, you can have love since you talk about it in your way and we don't wanna confuse anybody so we just won't talk about love because we wouldn't want anyone to mistake what we're talking about for what you're talking about. The answer to that is not to abdicate love, it's to ramp love up to its fullest volume. The answer is that the sure, you understand that love is ours. It belongs to us because we know the love of God in Christ, love is our thing, it should be our thing. We better be marked by it. Love in its fullest, truest, deepest, loudest, most profound, most sacrificial sense, that's supposed to be ours. If Jesus has said the fulfillment of all my commands is love, should we be about love? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So that's the first thing is we, can, we always have this tool available to us to say, what does love require of me? I mean, true, genuine, deep love, what does it look like? Now, let's look at verse five, because the second thing about love and how it's this tool for us is, is there. So verse five, he says this. He says, whoever keeps his word, right? So whoever does what God has commanded, in him, truly the love of God is perfected, Okay, so there's two questions we have to answer in order to understand the meaning of that, that just short phrase, right? We have to ask, does love of God mean my love towards God or does it mean God's love towards me? Can you see how it could be either one of those? And at different points, depending on which, what the context is, there are times where love of God means God's love towards us and there's times where it means our love towards God. Okay, so without going into all the nuance, most of John's use of it in this letter is our love towards God. So that's how we're gonna understand this here, okay? Now, here's the great thing, because what we're gonna find in 1 John chapter four, and I don't wanna steal all my thunder from four chapters, you know, when we get there, but what we're gonna find is that our love towards God exists because God first loved us. So that's not absent here, okay? God loves first, and our response is to love him in return. And we'll unpack that more as we get further into the letter. But here we think he's saying, The fulfillment, right? If you obey my commands, then your love towards God is perfected. So the second question we have to answer is, what does that mean? What does perfected mean? It's not a perfectionism. There's a pretty famous theologian, uh, John Wesley, pastor, theologian, who had this, who erred a little bit in his idea that we could actually love perfectly. He kind of took this and he said, well, we can love perfectly. And, And while I appreciate a lot of John Wesley, I think he's just wrong There, I mean, that's kind of what chapter one, verse eight says in terms of saying, look, we're not going to be without sin. So, but the beauty of this phrase is that we don't want to shortchange how powerful our ability to love is. So, when he says his love is perfected, think about it this way that word really means brought to completion. That's the phrase I want you to remember brought to completion. So, what has he just said in this one very short phrase? Here's what John says whoever keeps God's commands, in that person, their love for God is brought to completion. So in other words, what that means is it is the very nature of love when it's in us. So God loves us first, First John 4. Our response is to love him in return. And our love that's directed towards him has a trajectory. It has a direction and it has power. That love does not sit idle. It does not sit still. It does not produce nothing. It is effectual in what it does, and when that love is in us, it naturally moves in the direction of producing good work. That's its nature. It can't be there and not do it. Do you see what I'm saying? That work cannot be there and not do it, which is why then John says the completion of your love for God is to do good works. You're not saved by them. You're not redeemed by them, but when his love is there, it produces love in response, And then that responding love that you have towards God produces those good works. So here's the tool he just told you you have. When God's love is in you and love towards him then is in you, it will, by its very nature, produce good works. So as you go again and again to say, remind me of your love, God, and fill me with love for you, what will that produce? Good works. And so that's one of the key things. If we're learning how to love what is good and do what is good, one of the first tools that God has given us is love. That we're not producing these kind of works out of a sense of duty or obligation, but that we're so overwhelmed with love for God that the natural trajectory of that love is to do what he commands and to want to obey him. Does this make sense, yes? All right, don't undersell the importance of love being full of it and full of love. Sorry, get my phrasing right. All right, second thing, I gotta, I should move on. Here we go. Second thing we see is the second tool that's given to us is commands. Now, this may be counter to kind of how you immediately think, how many of you have ever uh, received a command you did not want to follow? Yeah, in our flesh, in our nature, the reality is, I mean, some of us, tomorrow, our boss is gonna say, I need you to do this, and you're going to be like, ugh, I don't wanna do that, right? We, in our nature, you know, tend to resist that kind of authority, those kinds of commands, but I don't want you to miss what a powerful tool this is for learning to do what is good and what is right. It's super important. So look at verse three again, and let's see where this comes from, because in verse three, he says, and by this, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now, up to this point, he hasn't talked about commandments. He hasn't talked about commands. He's talked about being in the light rather than the darkness, right? He's talked about being children of God. So he talks about, he's talking about these things and he's not just like out of ways to express it. So he's looking for a new and kind of creative way to say it. He's saying something very important here when he says, okay, we've talked about walking in the light and not walking in the darkness. The natural question would be to say, how do I know what is light and what is darkness? And John's response is to say, you wanna know that you're connected to him. He has given you commands to show you what is good and to show you what is evil, to show you what is right and to show you what is wrong. Now get the importance of this. What John is saying is that you can know right and wrong. There is moral clarity given to us in the commands of God. Now, if I had time, we could go, and we've done this before, we could go into, okay, well, under the Old Testament law, what is the role of the moral law and the ceremonial law and the civil law? And you know, we could parse out, okay, for a, for a new covenant believer, what does that look like? I'm not gonna take the time to do all that today. We've done it in the past, and there's lots of good resources we can point you towards. But here's what I want you to understand. One of the things that John is saying is that God has, with great clarity, showed us by his commands what is right and what is wrong. I wanna give us that very simple thing today. So here's what that means, is that you, as a follower of Jesus, have in the written word of God, both the commands under the law in the Old Testament, which you know, are fulfilled in Christ, but also represent the very righteousness and holy nature of God, right? And in the teachings of Jesus and in his commands that he's given us, we have in him a moral clarity that is not present in the world. We have a declaration of that. And that's hugely important because remember back in verse four of chapter one and in verse eight of chapter one, there were two things that he said. And in chapter four uh, of, in verse four of chapter one, he basically said that there are some people who have left you and they're lying to you. They're trying to, they're trying to deceive you with their lies. And then he said in verse eight, and you also if you say you don't have any sin, you're deceiving yourself. So what he's saying there is that it's possible both that other people would deceive us and we can also deceive ourselves, agreed, yes? And so he says, because both those things are possible, you need someone who is omniscient and all powerful and all, you know, who is wise, who knows everything to show you what is right or wrong. Otherwise, you're gonna be making those decisions on your own and as you do, you're going to be led astray. You're going to be self-deceived or you're gonna be deceived by someone else. And one of the tools we have to love what is good and do what is good is the commands of God so that we don't have to wonder. If somebody comes to me and says, Trent, you should really be doing this This is what God wants you to do. Do I just take that at face value or do I go back to God's words and his commands and measure them against that? Now, if you've grown up in church, you might think, well, that of course, it's like no done. It's easy, but I need you to recognize how what a great gift that is. Because in a world of absolute moral confusion, we have moral clarity. We have clear commands, clear instructions. So stick, stick to them, hear them, read them, study them, know them and rejoice in them. His law is life giving. His word is life. So now let me do something real quick. And, and, you know, I know every week we have a lot of folks who believe in Jesus and then we'll always have some who do not. And I will say, I will, to my dying breath, say, man, this is the right place for you to be if you don't believe in Jesus because we want to tell you about him. We hope you're willing to listen. And we also just, we, we recognize everybody finds themselves in different spots. And so we wanna, we wanna help you for it. So we're glad you're asking questions and willing to come and examine. And by the way, not a small thing when you are not a follower of Jesus to walk into a church. That's not a small thing. It's a big thing, so you know, well done. Let me. I wanna give a little apologetic here for you, specifically for you, but everybody else, don't check out, okay? Might help you. All right, so the thing I want to suggest is this. Uh, I heard Tim Keller say this before he passed away. He's a pastor and theologian, and uh, he said this, and I really agree with him. Uh, he said, when he was planting his church in New York City, that in that time, the, the greatest gospel opportunity felt like it was to talk a lot about idolatry uh, to help clarify for folks that things like money and family and, you know, career success could become idols. Functionally, they could become the thing we worship. And he said that it seemed to resonate, strike a chord uh, in a way that helped people see their need for the Lord. And I think he was probably right. But he said, if I were planting that same church now today in New York City, the thing that I would have to spend a lot more time talking about is not idolatry, but identity. That I think identity is the greatest gospel opportunity. And that's what really, I mean, it's probably not surprising to you that that resonated with me. I talk a lot about identity here because there's so much confusion around identity. There's so much confusion about who we are and what gives us value and what our purpose in life is and how we walk in it. And, you know, confusion down to the level of biology and gender and sexuality and all of it. I mean, it's, look, it's confusing, Right? And I think that is the greatest gospel opportunity of our day. If we can see how God establishes an identity, then I think we can see how powerful the message of Jesus is and perhaps see our need for him. So let me make one just quick kind of thought here for you if you're not a follower of Jesus, right? I would suggest that you cannot have an identity that is sustainable, and strong. You can't have it without moral imperatives, without commands. Now, that might not be readily obvious, but let me tell you why I think that. We always talk about identity as predominantly where we get our sense of purpose from and where we get our sense of value from, like what gives me worth and what, what is my purpose in life. You know, you can pick nits with that, but that's kind of the, at least mostly, that's a lot of it. There's some other components, but if you take it as that, then here's what I would suggest to you. Your identity will always be changing if you have to if you don't have moral imperatives because here's what those moral imperatives do clear moral commands from a being higher than us right who gets to declare right and wrong if you don't have that then you're always going to be changing what gives you value and you're always going to be changing what your purpose is cuz as you grow and change your sense of right and wrong can grow and change right and if that's true right then how do you figure out what your purpose is without clear without a clear sense of what is right and what is wrong? How do you establish your sense of what gives you value, right, if there's not a clear sense of right and wrong telling you these things are good and therefore valuable, these things are wrong and therefore not valuable? So I would just suggest to you that you need moral imperatives. As much as our flesh resists them, they're really necessary. They're really necessary. And one of the reasons I share that is because I recognize if you're not in Christ, you might, I will say, you know, For those of us, before we came to Jesus, we recognized that we kind of pushed against moral imperatives probably, uh, more than we do now, because we've come into this trusting, loving relationship with God, and his commands now are, we just find them to be life-giving versus life-taking or like heavy, if that makes sense. Okay, fair enough, yes? All right, cool. Take it or leave it, for those of you who are not a follower of Jesus, but I just thought I'd throw that nugget your way, and I hope it's helpful. All right, the next tool that we are given here in the text is also found in verse three. And it's more what's not said than what is said, but we have to go back to it every time. And that tool is grace and faith, grace and faith. I said last week, the thing that draws us out of sin and also now the thing that moves us towards loving and doing good is radical grace. Radical grace imparted to us. So look at what he says in verse three. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And here's what he didn't say. He did not say, here's how we come to know him, by keeping his commandments. He says, this is how we know that we have, this is how we know that we know, is what he's saying. This is how we know that we have come to know him. In other words, our, our doing what is right is not what saves us, it's not what redeems us, it's not the way that we are connected to him. It's not the way that we know him, it's the proof that we know him. And that order is deeply important because your works and my works can't bear the weight of getting us right with God, but what they can do is become the outflow of being right with God, of knowing him. And that's so deeply important because if you spend your life trying to figure out how to love what is right and do what is right in your own strength, you will not make it. It will become a hamster wheel that will kill you you will run yourself into exhaustion. One of two things will happen every time without exception and usually both, one before the other, right? You will be crushed by the weight of your inability to do anything that is truly in in a weighty sense good because you do not have the capability to do it to the the degree that the righteousness of God requires of you. Or, and usually this comes first, you'll do it for a while and become really self-righteous because you think you're doing it so well. Until the moment comes that somebody you see does it better or until you fail, until you don't do it and you have the sobering reality of like, oh, I failed, I didn't do it. I'm not sure we're aiming at self-righteousness or being crushed. Anybody wanna end there? And so what God is saying here is he's saying, the proof that you know me is that this Love that you walk in and this relationship that you have produces these good works, grace and faith. Let's get really practical. How do these become weapons by which we love good and do good? Well, think about what grace does. Grace is unmerited favor. That's what grace is. It's God putting his unmerited, unearned favor and blessing upon you. Well, that doesn't stop with just with justifying us. It doesn't just stop with giving us the righteousness of Christ. If he never did anything more than that, it would be enough, amen? Oh my goodness gracious. But he says, no, no, I continue to show you my unmerited favor. I give you spiritual gifts, like leadership and administration and mercy and teaching, wisdom. I give you skill sets like music and carpentry. and I, I fill you with all these. I, I lavish my gifts upon you not just saving grace, but sanctifying grace and grace that continues to just give good gifts like a dad gives to his kids because I love you and I love to give good gifts to you. Now think about this. One of my great agendas would be for everybody in this church to know what your gifts are and use them. Just everybody. Like if you're sitting here today and you're like, I don't know what my spiritual gifts are. Let's solve that problem. Let's figure it out, right? Let's let's uncover what your gifts are because God gave them to you. And he wants to grow them. He wants to fan that spark of a gift into a flame and he wants to use it to build up his body and reach the lost and extend his kingdom and do amazing work. But you gotta know what they are. And they're in you because of grace. So that grace pours in those good gifts. And as we have those gifts, what are we given the strength to do? Good, to do the good. How does faith? enable us to do it. Well, faith fills us with courage to do what is good. Have you ever had a hard time doing it? Is it ever scary to do what is good? Scary to do what is right? Yeah, all the time, by the way. And faith in the promises of God that'll keep them towards us, faith that we belong to him, faith that our future is secure, faith that he loves us, this forward-looking faith fills us with courage so that we will not just love the good, but do the good, even when it's hard. Do you see how grace and faith are these amazing weapons? They are amazing weapons. And when you take the weight of salvation off of them, uh, off of our works, right, and recognize that it's by grace, through faith, when you take the weight of salvation off your works, all of a sudden, your works can do amazing things because they're not trying to serve a purpose or an end that they can't serve. All right, let's go to the last, uh, last two. And the, this next one is a quicker one. I just wanna show it to you. And again, here's another scenario where sometimes I think folks who are um, really committed to biblical truth, we get a little nervous about this because some, some of our friends who are, Don't believe in the need for the atoning blood of Jesus. Don't necessarily believe that he bodily rose from the dead. Uh, Don't believe that he was our substitute on the cross. You know, don't believe that he was fully divine and fully human. Some of these kinds of schools of thought often then will end up talking about Jesus as our good example. And we rightly want to say he is much more than that. He is our Savior, our Lord, He is everything. All right, so we never wanna let go of that. But sometimes then we lose sight of the fact that he is, yes, also our example to follow. And look at what verse six says of chapter two. It says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I just wanna point out very simply what this text is telling us is that, oh yeah, you need to love what is good and do what is good. Here's a great gift I'm giving you, the example of Jesus You have the written record of his life and his teaching that you can go back to all the time and see what he said and what he did and how he lived. And in witnessing that, we have an example to follow, which is really helpful. Have you ever considered, why did God have Jesus live on the earth for as long as he did? Why didn't he cut his life much shorter? Right? He didn't just send him into the world and make a sinless substitutionary sacrifice of him after two years or three years or four years. He gave us 33 years of life with Jesus and a ministry and him calling people and healing the sick and doing amazing works because he was demonstrating for us, demonstrating for us who he is through the person of Christ, fully divine and giving us an example, giving us an example. Does that make sense? Yes. So we have the example available to us. Now, let's look at the last weapon. The last weapon or tool that he gives us to learn to do what is right, love what is right, and do what is right is light. And this is massive. And I wanna do something to, to illustrate this. So my friend Susanna is gonna come up. Susanna, come on up. Everybody welcome Susanna with me. She's gonna help us illustrate this. So she's coming up. I like your dress, it's purdy. That's what we say in Texas when it's super pretty. We say purdy. Okay, Susanna, you can go stand right over here. So uh, nobody moved during this time. I don't want any torn ACLs. We're gonna turn all the lights out, okay? So Susanna, your job is, there's a penny out here somewhere. Your job is to see if you can find the penny and don't hit any musical instruments, okay? Are you ready? All right, go ahead team. How we doing? All right, there we go. Well, oh, I got a light. That's a little tough, isn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, pause right where you are. Good job. All right, team, can we get that one spotlight, please? You can grab it. There we go, give her a big round of applause, everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you, Susanna. I'm so generous, you can keep that penny. (laughs) You're all good, you can go with mom and dad. Thank you, sweetheart. The generosity is astounding. What verse eight is telling us in this text is that when Jesus came into the world, he fundamentally changed it. Not just you, he changed the universe because he entered into complete darkness. And what was never possible because darkness ruled and reigned and covered everything has now been changed. Because the light of Christ has shined in the world, in the same way, Susanna couldn't find that penny. She might have, you know, given enough time and on your hands and knees, maybe groping about. Eventually, perhaps she would have found the penny and ruined my illustration. But the second the light comes on, what does Susanna find immediately? She finds the object. What once was po- was not possible is possible. Look at verse eight. This is what he says. And there's, a, there's a, a phrase in here that I think feels like you just kind of read past it, but it's, its power is almost inestimable. So look at verse eight. Actually, start in verse seven, because I need to explain the new command, old command thing. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Now in verse nine and 10, he's gonna clarify that that is love, love one another. That's the command he's talking about. Remember, we went from general commands to specific command, love one another. So that's the old command he's talking about. He's remembering back to Jesus in John 13 and Matthew 22 and going, hey, from the time we came to know Jesus, we heard this, love each other, love each other, love each other, so it's not new. I'm not making something up. But then, now he's gonna thoroughly confuse us here for a second, because he's gonna say, at the same time, it is a new commandment. So you immediately go, well, what is it old or is it new? Make up your mind. He says that I'm writing to you. Now here's the phrase, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Already shining. Do you see what he's saying? The way that this command to love each other, it's an old commandment because it's exactly what Jesus said from the beginning, no surprises. It's new because you have a new power to carry it out. There is a new power available through the spirit of God that Jesus has sent into the world to enable you to do what you could not do before. Do you get how radical it is that he says, this command to love each other is new? And it says, and it is true in him and in you, now we expect that in him, it's true in Jesus that he loves, that he loved us, that he kept that command, that he fulfilled it, fair enough, yes, that's easy enough, but he doesn't have to include the next phrase, and he does, he says, and it's true in you, this call to love each other, you've been filled with the ability to obey that command, it's true in you, why is it true? Because the true light is shining, already shining. What he's saying is Jesus has shined light into the world in such a way that now his followers are able to love and do what is right and do what is good with new power in a way they could. not I think we often think about the world as a very dark place and in in ways it, it is. But do you understand and do you ever think about the world as having been radically altered by the presence of Christ in it? Now what once was only darkness, now is light. There is light. And guess what, church? His light is in you. And the light will not be overcome by the darkness. The light that is in you through Christ and his spirit living in you is now enabling you to do in ways that are unimaginable what you could never do before. You can love and do what is right in ways you never could before. Don't discount that. Don't make it a minor thing. And it's not just true in you. It's true because Christ is already shining in the world everywhere you go. You carry his light with you and you push back the darkness. That spotlight becomes another spotlight and another spotlight and another spotlight and another spotlight. spotlight. Wherever the people of Christ go, his light shines. The world has been changed forever and it can't do anything about it. The darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. You can love, you can use your gifts, you can obey commands, that Christ has made, you can choose the right, not the wrong, you can sacrifice, you can be patient, you can be filled with all the fruit of the Spirit, you have a new power through the light who has come. Do you believe that? We sang about dry bones in that song, and that might have been not a familiar reference to you, but it's from Ezekiel chapter 37. In Ezekiel chapter 36, Ezekiel is writing, And he talks about the new covenant that's gonna come through the Messiah. And he says, when the Messiah comes, he's gonna give you a new heart, not a heart of stone. He's gonna take that heart of stone out of you. And he's gonna give you a heart of flesh. By flesh there, he doesn't mean like flesh, evil, wicked, how sometimes the scripture uses it. He means flesh, like tender towards God. He's gonna give you a new heart. He's gonna change you inside. And from the inside, it's gonna go to the outside. He's gonna radically change you. And he talks about that as what's gonna happen when Jesus comes into the world. And then in verse chapter 37, right after talking about that new covenant and the miracle, that's gonna happen. He's prophesying this 600 years-ish before Jesus comes. God takes him to a valley and gives him a vision, of, well, in a vision, he takes him to a valley, and the valley's full of bones, dry bones. And in the vision, Ezekiel sees God put muscle and tendons and flesh on those bones and then breathe life into those beings, and they stand up and they begin to walk. They're animated again. What was dead is brought to life, and what God is saying to Ezekiel is, I'm going to raise the dead out of death and into life when I establish this new covenant through my savior. I'm gonna do an amazing work, and I'm going to enable you through this new heart that I give you to obey my commands and to love as you should love, the exact same thing John is talking about. And Ezekiel's writing it almost 600 years before. God raises the dead to life. We should be full of faith at the possibilities in front of us today and tomorrow and the next day. What God can do, not just in us, in teaching us to love the good and do the good, but then through us into the lives of others. All right, let's pray together. And then we're gonna sing to conclude our time. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word we truly recognize that there is no human explanation of that word that is sufficient to do the, the work that needs to be done in our hearts. But what is true, Lord, is that your word is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. It's able to help us rightly divide our thoughts and our motives and our actions. And so would you take your word, plant it in us so that we might walk in a way that's pleasing to you, that we might remember how loved we are by you and that from that love would overflow out of us. Uh, Obedience and power and love towards you and towards our neighbor, help us. And now we wanna sing to you, whenever we hear your word, uh, our response is to worship you because you are proclaiming truth to us and what we wanna do in response is to tell you how great you are. So would you receive our praise now from your people, from inside our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and worship the Lord to conclude our time.